good. I'm uh, I'm turning off uh, Dropbox. Good. I'm I'm I just turned off uh, Backblaze. Turn turn them all off. Turn uh, turn them off all the way down, Don. All the way down to eleven. You know people people hate it when we talk about things that aren't food safety on on the Food Safety Talk podcast. Did you know that? Well, one to, to be. To be fair, it's only one person, and they came to us from NPR. So clearly, the podcast experience that they are looking for and to which they have become accustomed on NPR is not what we are offering. Not enough jazz breaks. Um, I think maybe you and I, sometimes our voices probably get a little too excitable. Um, We're not... not we're not professional broadcasters. Oh, that's true. We don't we don't have a script. No. If you want if you want scripted broadcasts, go elsewhere. Uh, go to NPR. No, sometimes you know sometimes there's some good stuff on NPR that's unscripted. I think. Um, no, I don't listen. <laughs> sometimes I have. I've you know I, I listen to NPR um, in my in my kitchen while I'm cooking or preparing food, and I usually do it through uh, my little Alexa box. And I say, Alexa, turn on NPR. And uh, she does it. And now everybody who's listening who has Alexa is now um, massively shutting off NPR. Turn on Alexa, NPR. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So um, for those of you um, who are uh, new new to the podcast uh, and don't check our website every single day, um, if you're interested in the comment that uh, Don and I are referring to, it's on episode uh, 147, only, only robots in the kitchen. Uh, and the comment goes as such. Uh, guys, I heard Ben on NPR this week, so I was super excited to check out your food safety podcast. Seems like you have a lot of great content here, but your show seemed to have no respect for your listeners' time. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Don't make me listen to five minutes of tech issues before you even explore what the episode is about. After five minutes of listening to all the crap about your podcast audio problems, I just gave up, gave up and clicked your links. Really, what's the point of all that nonsense? That's from and, uh, and here's the thing: if if you if you are getting benefit from reading our links, maybe a podcast is not what you're looking for. Maybe you're looking for a blog or you're looking to read the internet. Or links. Maybe just a, a, a set of links. And so here, here's the thing. Ben. This, uh, this podcast, this, this comment gave me pause. Um, <laughs> and, and I think um, the thing that I like about podcasts is – it's a conversation. It's a conversation between two people. And I don't know about you, Ben, but when I start a conversation with a person, it might not be about the thing that we mostly end up talking about. It might be about some like random thing that we just encountered uh, that's on our mind. Absolutely. It's like, it's, <laughs> yes, it, it's like maybe I just want to talk to you because you're my friend. And uh, sometimes I come to you for advice. Sometimes I just want to I want to sit back and chat. And we just happen to record this. And ultimately, what you and I have in common the most is food safety. So the conversation is probably going to end up there. But yeah. Well, I we have more than just food safety in common. You know, we we grew grew up not far from one another on opposite sides of the Canadian border. Um, Let's see. We both have lovely wives. We we both have two boys. Um, We both played hockey when we were younger. Um, There's a lot. There's a lot of commonality. This is a good point. We both have beards. It's Um, true. We uh, and mainly because of your lead. 
uh, when when we go to meetings together, we often both wear jeans and a sport jacket. <laughs> uh, I haven't gone full Paul Simon yet where I can pull off um, jeans, a sport jacket, and a T-shirt. Uh, but I'm getting there. I'm I'm not too far off, and we'll and soon we'll have all that in common. Um, so yeah, you're you're right. There are uh, there are things other than food safety that we have in common. Sometimes, uh, and and I'm going to come full circle on this uh, comment. Sometimes one of the things that we have in common is that our Skype doesn't work, and we just like to talk about it. <laughs> so anyway, for those of you who are here for the food safety talk, it hasn't started yet. Don't worry. We'll get to it. Or, you know, oh, here's another here's another uh, pro tip. Um, most podcast apps uh, have a fast forward button. So there you go. Yeah. Get to the get to the stuff. Um, <laughs> I, your response to KMB was, quote, in air quotes, sorry to use, lose you as a listener. You might really <laughs> enjoy some of the scripted podcasts produced by government <laughs> agencies. Um, and I did not post this, but my when we were exchanging texts, all I wanted to write to KMB was, it's not you, it's me. It's, yeah. <laughs> yes. It's, 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 it's totally me. You're right. You're right. We're not meant for each other. And it's because of me and the choices that I make, <laughs> which is to, to have a podcast that we, uh, that we enjoy ourselves. Um, and I, Don, I, I'm going to take, uh, I, I'm going to take one of these, uh, comments in here and, and this, this should not, um, be a surprise to our listeners. Um, it says the, the comment from Camby is your show seems to have no respect for your listeners time. And, Don, that's that's true. I, it's not. I don't really have any respect for our listeners' time. Our listeners can choose to listen or not. We haven't. We don't have an appointment. Um, sometimes the podcast content, like the podcast that I listen to, maybe it's just not for me. Other times, the conversation's great, and I really want to keep listening. But um, I, I don't. I, it's not. Um, it's really not about people's time that that I'm thinking of. It's our time. Well, and, I and honestly, I'm I, yeah, and I'm I'm not going to manage their time for them. It's up to them to manage their time. That's so, right. and if you want a, t- a podcast on time management, um, you you could you could listen to Back to Work, but that's mostly two guys rambling about stuff that the podcast is not about. So, <laughs> but here's a shout out to Dan Benjamin and Merlin Mann who have a nominal podcast about productivity where they mostly talk about other stuff. Yeah, uh, and that's the that's the fun of the show. So sorry, KMB. See ya. Uh, yeah. Um, so we, we have a very, we have a very special guest if, if all of our, uh, technology works uh, coming up and I'm not going to, uh, I'm, I'm not going to give a teaser, but if you want to know about farmers markets and food safety and, um, I am going to give a teaser. I said I wasn't, uh, here's the teaser. Uh, if you're interested in those things, um, you'll, you'll hear about them in a little bit from us, a very, a very special guest. Um, I, uh, I mean, we got some, we have some fun stuff in some listener feedback that we want to get to before we have our very special guest on. Um, and we just got one today that, um, that I wanted to like really, I mean, an hour and an hour ago before we started recording or a little over. Yep. Um, and so this is from someone who says you can read my message, but not my name. Um, and I will read this one. It says, hello, friends. Uh, I'm not sure if this is a message you want to share on the air, and it and I'll add our parentheses here. It absolutely is. Yep. Um, it's a little anecdote. If you choose to share it, please call me half foreigner, and that is in all capitals. And I want to. Um, I think that half foreigner here is 
um, is based on uh, this individual's love of the '80s band uh, Foreigner. Foreigner. That's that was my immediate thought. It was. It's half. But they only. But they only love the band half. Yeah. Just. I, maybe. That's a little weird. It is. I. Don, I, I would put my love of the, for the band Foreigner at about ten percent. So I understand. Once again, uh, I blame you for attending this year's CFP, uh, Conference for Food Protection. And by blame, I mean, I mean thank you. Listening to the pod, dot, 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 cast, inspired me to attend last year's IAFP meeting in Tampa. In co- at the conclusion of that meeting, I sent you a note, which you read on air, and advised to attend the Conference for Food Protection. Uh, as you mentioned before, the process is fascinating. It's great to watch regulations come to life right in front of your eyes. The greatest thing about the conference for me was the people and their passion for food safety. The platform that was created truly advances food safety as a whole. Direct competitors came together to advance food safety for public benefit, embodying the idea that food safety isn't competitive. Um, the uh, um, uh, half foreigner goes on to say, I am still a food service operator, but the more people I meet from industry and academia alike, the more my idea of a graduate degree in food safety becomes a reality. My contribution may be small, but I'm excited to be part of a team who are able to put together an idea for a roundtable at the IAFP annual meeting in 2018 entitled, Help, I am new to management. Uh, It was the hard work and leadership of my teammates that made the idea a reality. While my influence and contributions were minimal, I'm excited to be part of the group that had the idea. Um, and I'll uh, read a summary from that IAFP roundtable, which is going to be held Tuesday, July uh, 10th uh, in uh, Salt Lake City at the Salt Palace Convention Center, Ballroom G and I. Uh, this roundtable is uh, help. I'm new management. How do I convince my colleagues food safety is important? And um, this the session's all about uh, effective and ineffective management styles of communicating food safety with stakeholders within an organization, the drivers that affect restaurant and food service employees to comply with food safety regulations, and the advantage of having the right management communication techniques. So I'm I'm kind of excited. I didn't know about this roundtable until uh, Half Warner uh, mentioned it, but it's cool uh, um, to see this. Um, and so. The I, I think the nicest uh, thing that's uh, part of uh, Half Foreigner's message is if it wouldn't have been for your podcast, your candid ability to take the concepts and make palatable for a wider audience, I would have probably not ventured towards food safety. I would be looking at a graduate education revenue management for hotels and restaurants. So thank you for rattling my cage, steering me in the right direction, and for listening to my ramblings. And I, I will add some editorial note. It may not be the right direction. It's just our direction, the the direction that Don and I happen to be in. Um, but, and I, and yeah. I would say, too, um, revenue management sounds like you'd probably make more money. But oh, I yeah. can tell you, food safety would be way more fun. So so thanks. thanks, Thank you so much to Half Foreigner for emailing us. And, yeah, I, I had not heard about this uh, this session at IAFP, and uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. And for sure um, – uh, I'm gonna go. I'm, I'm planning on going. I, I might get. I might get waylaid because ha- that happens at IAFP sometimes. But um, yeah, I'm, this this sounds like a fantastic session. And the other thing too that I wanted to say is I am like super excited that there's like tons of roundtables at IAFP. And this is something that I always thought we ought to be doing more of. And I think we are. And so yay yeah. for us and yay for Half Warner and the team of other folks that that put this session together. Um. Yeah, and Half Warner mentioned the Conference for Food Protection, which I think we'll come back to a little bit. But um, you and I were there for the 
educational workshop part of uh, CFP, and it's not something that I've attended. I've, um, I think I only went to one of them in the past, and um, it was a little different format where there were some breakout sessions that were all hands-on, like with deli slicing and stuff, and um, you know, talking about regulations. And it was more of a roundtable kind of feel, and I like that. I like that aspect of a of a meeting where. You, it's not just someone talking at you the whole time. Cause, and being someone who does a lot of the just talking at you, I think it's nice to not um, to, to not always be in that kind of format. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, other other feedback, uh, Don? What? Yeah, so another bit of feedback. Uh, we, we, we teased to people that we were going to be in Michigan. Um, we will link to the Global Food Law Current Issues Conference. That is going to be June 19 through 21. Uh, ben and I will be doing a live podcast at that event. And so uh, thanks to uh, the listener, uh, Lindsay, who who said, hey, wait, where are you going to be in Michigan and when? So, Lindsay, uh, that, that's for you and for anybody else who's interested. We did get a number of people who asked about this. So we, uh, we'll link to that. And please do show up in person and, and say hi. Yeah. And, and those for um, – you know, this will be the second one that we've done in, in this kind of format. And the way that Don and I like to do it is we may start – uh, a 10 or 15 minute conversation about you know, news of the week, but it, it's really a and a kind of session. So if you want to come and join our discussion then come in, and show up and it sounds like a fun time. Yep. So, uh, so let's, so yeah. let's go back to, uh, backpacking and camping. Okay. So this is, uh, from uh, listener Katie, Katie writes, uh, my husband and I love backpacking and car camping next year. We are planning a three night camping trip to at the dry Tortugas. I don't know what that sounds like, uh, what that is, but it sounds dry. <laughs> so the dry Tortugas, um, planning on buying a Yeti cooler to prolong the life of our ice for three days in 70 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit weather. Last year, we had to throw out a lot of food because our cheap cooler couldn't hold up to the weather. I'm not fond, not fond of the high sodium in freeze-dried backpacking food. Do you have some advice on fresh food choices, um, ice-to-food ratio, good formula? Should I keep a thermometer in the cooler, um, et cetera? And so my advice is, um, uh, I mean, I, you know, again, I did a lot of backpacking with the scouts Freeze-dried backpacking food is light and convenient, um, but you know you can you can sort of substitute other shelf-stable foods. Um, some of my favorite would be peanut butter, uh, tuna fish in pouches, uh, which you can just tear open, crackers, you know things like that. Um, less risky perishable foods, uh, yogurt and cheese are a good choice because they're already fermented. So even if they are temperature abused, the risk is low. Um, if you have uh, fresh uh, produce um, that's not already chopped, things like, I'm thinking like apples and bananas and oranges, uh, that can be a good uh, healthy choice that's also relatively low risk. Um, if you are, if you're in a situation where you can do a lot of the prep work yourself, um, you can take uh, things like potatoes and onions uh, and then just chop and prep them uh, on site and they'll, they'll last a, a good long time. Um, I did not want to venture an ice to food ratio, uh, but but one way to, to to address that problem was if you do want to bring some meat, freeze the meat and then bring it along frozen, and then um, that acts as ice basically until it thaws. Again, you still you still having a good well insulated cooler is a good idea. 
um, and then having a thermometer in that cooler is a great idea. Um, if you have uh, visible ice, the temperature of the food should be close to 32, um, but certainly a thermometer is a good idea. If you have access to dry ice and you can handle it carefully, uh, dry ice will give you a better bang for your buck, uh, but do be careful uh, with dry ice. It can burn you, and then, of course, I would never keep uh, dry ice in a tent uh, because uh, it, when it sublimes, uh, you could suffocate. So you have to be careful. I mean, probably probably unlikely, but again, probably not a best best practice. So that's uh, that's my feedback on uh, uh, low-risk uh, food safety um, practices while uh, camping and backpacking. Uh, I have nothing to add other than to ask you a question about this. Um, I, I remember having a uh, conversation a couple of years ago with um, someone from a magazine who's you know a, a camping or backpacking magazine, and they asked a question about hard-boiled eggs. Um, mm-hmm. And I... I deferred the question and with by answering hard boiled eggs, whether you're camping or not, are disgusting. Um, oh, no, I, they're not my thing. And I don't like deviled eggs. I don't like I mean, a cold egg is I'm not sure what the I, I'm looking for an analogy, but it's not it's not my thing. It's not my cup of tea, as they say. Um, so but the um, the the individual was talking about like ultra marathon runners and people that are camping and like trekking for 70 miles and like being able to boil hard boiled eggs, you know, at some point and then carry them for like 10, 15 days. What's your, what's your thought on that? Um, keeping the hard boiled eggs in, in the shell. Cause I've, what do you, what, what's your, what's your well, thought? I- I would say again, like so many things, it's not no no risk, but I would say certainly low risk. Um, I I do like the occasional hard boiled egg. Um, I I'm not sure. I don't think anybody has really studied hard boiled eggs that would be room held at room temperature for uh, two weeks. To me, I think that's probably a spoilage issue because those eggs are not going to be sterile um, and you could get some microorganisms penetrating from the outside of the shell to the inside um, and then you could get some some spoilage. Um, but, you know, as, a, as risks go, that's a relatively low risk. You boil it in the shell. Um, you know, as long as the shell is intact, that's somewhat of a barrier, but again, it's not, it's not going to be a perfect barrier. And I suspect at some point you would, uh, you would get some, uh, you would get some spoilage. Um, one thing that you could do, um, is you could make, um, uh, sugar or salt cured egg yolks, ah, which we also yes. got some BBC. I did that segue. Um, so we got some feedback, uh, from, uh, deep fed, um, who basically said, Hey, can one of my food safety extension specialists help answer this consumer question about, uh, something called gravid eggs, G R A V E D eggs or gr- graved. I think it's pronounced gravid, but graved eggs. Um, uh, uh, from what I can read, egg yolks are dropped in a sugar salt mixture covered and allowed to cure for various time periods. Um, it seems like if you could do this safely, this would be great. But again, I would worry about times and temperatures. And again, the person that emailed our colleague says, um, can you tell me if the curing in sugar or salt would kill any lingering salmonella? No, um, actually, that's going to preserve the salmonella. Salmonella is known to survive um, low moisture conditions quite well. Um, again, we talked many times on this podcast that the risk of salmonella being present in egg yolks is small. 
Um, but it is, uh, it is a potential risk and putting them in sugar and salt is not going to lower that risk depending on the curing process and how fast it takes place and at what temperature it takes place. The risk might go up from multiplication of the salmonella if it's there. Um, I suppose if you are really concerned about food safety, you could use some in shell pasteurized eggs. Um, but I just, you know, I mean, you can, you can Google, uh, and we will maybe link to a, a recipe for gra graved or gravid eggs, but I, um, it sounds interesting. I would, might try some, but I would be a little bit leery depending on how they're prepared. Yeah. Do you have, do you have I, any thoughts? Yeah, they sound. It also sounds disgusting. <laughs> you do you like do you like omelets or scrambled? I do. Eggs yeah. Or fried eggs. Okay. I, yeah, I do. Like I like I like heated eggs. I like just a normal, none of this weird hipster egg stuff. <laughs> By hipster egg stuff, I mean hard boiled <laughs> eggs, right? Like the. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is. There's something about about texture, but I I enjoy scrambled eggs. I like uh, just regular. I used to like soft boiled eggs growing up. It's not something that I like to eat so much now. I like a good poached egg. Don, I'm I'm not. Uh, I don't I don't find my relationship with eggs to be problematic. But um, <laughs> this, but there's but like sugar or salt cured eggs just isn't doesn't sound like my thing. It's just okay. not. It's not my thing. All right. Well, there you go. So, yep. yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I uh, did not like eggs terribly much as a kid. Uh, one of my sons uh, definitely did not like eggs as a kid. But as he's gotten older and he's gotten into uh, exercise and he, he cycles and he, he lifts weights and he's discovered that eggs actually are not horrible. And they're also very, very affordable, very inexpensive, uh, very high quality protein. So um, we will link to a Huffington Post article, um, which we do not endorse, but just for FYI, uh, there's a, a Huffington Post article entitled, If You Aren't Salt Curing Your Eggs, You're Seriously Missing Out. Um, if anybody wants to give us some feedback on salt or sugar-cured eggs, uh, if you can find I – mean, I, I just Googled some stuff and clicked on one of the top links. If you are more diligent or you have some expertise, uh, please do reach out. But again, uh, low risk but not, uh, but not no risk. Um, so uh, speaking of eggs – since we're we're on uh, egg safety oh, egg safety I, talk, I, yes. Uh, like right after we rec we uh, recorded on um, our last episode, episode one fifty, uh, a massive uh, recall uh, because of uh, an outbreak happened. Uh, yep. Salmonella brand up uh, linked to I think right now I think it's still at twenty two cases um, of sam you know, of twenty two salmonella brand up cases. Um, were uh, uh, linked to eggs that were sold under lots and lots of different uh, brands at many of the retailers that you would know. Walmart uh, was one of them. Uh, Foodline was another one. Publix was another one. Um, but uh, the recall that that came out of this uh, was, I mean, staggering. 220 million eggs uh, recalled. And the farm, little uh, local content for me, the farm, uh, Roseacre Farms is uh, here in North Carolina. And I, I didn't know, I eggs aren't really, <laughs> eggs aren't really my thing. Um, <laughs> but uh, I didn't know the, the sort of staggering size of the egg production at Roseacre Acre Farms. I knew that they existed, didn't realize it was, I think it's the nation's fourth largest egg production uh, uh, company. Um, and they sell lots of, uh, you know, private label brand eggs. So, um, I did a bit of, uh, media on this actually while CFP was going on, I, I, I was doing some interviews cause a lot of this information broke, um, right, right around the time the, the uh, conference started. And it's, 
it's kind of a um, a, a funny one, or at least the way that I've been you know, looking at. It. We we um, and I had a chat with you actually before we uh, I started doing some some interviews because the questions that come up are what can consumers do? Um, if I have the recalled eggs, what should I do with them? Are eggs safe again? When will eggs be safe again? And what happened? And in no particular order, the types of things that I've been telling folks are, um, you know, we, we estimate that it's somewhere in between one in 10,000 and one in 20,000 eggs have salmonella in them in the U.S. It's pretty, you know, low, low risk. But something special has happened here, whether it's either a um, – more, you know, a higher concentration of salmonella, more prevalence. Maybe it's one in two thousand eggs. I mean, I, I don't, um, I don't know. I'm just sort of speculating on on that. But something, something special has happened because I, I would bet that our egg consumption pattern hasn't changed. But there's some increased risk coming out of, out of this farm. Um, one of the other things that I um, had mentioned, just leading uh, back to um, some outbreak stuff. Uh, and um, microbiology work that came out of um, Lynn McMullen's lab looking at shigatoxin-producing E. coli in, in beef and outbreak strains. That uh, She found some thermal tolerance in a couple of the strains, so maybe there's something there. Maybe this isn't um, an issue with cross-contamination or undercooked. Maybe, maybe there's a microbiological answer for this. Um, well, and the other thing that we talked about, I think we talked about this at CFP, is it also just could be that there isn't anything unusual about this except the epi signature. So in other words, people, um, SE in eggs is a problem, but the problem is that the salmonella enteritidis that comes from eggs looks just like all the other salmonella enteritidis. And so you can't distinguish it from the baseline, but maybe there is something, you know, there is something unique about this brander up strain that allowed epidemiologists to pick this out as a signal amidst all the other sort of baseline salmonella in egg signal that's out there. I mean, this is pure speculation on my part, but yep. we have to remember that it might just be something, you know, uniquely visible about this that it allows it to stand out from the background. Not that the risk has changed, but that just that this is just just because of the the contrast with the background. We can see this. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, all of these things can um, can play into why why now? Right. Like, why? Why are we having this discussion? I want to I want to come back to the one that I wrestled with the most, I guess. Um, and or or had to had to think about it a little bit, which is so I have a whole bunch of eggs in my fridge that are part of this recalled lot. Should I can I just cook with them? Can I just bake with them? And what I've kind of settled on, and you know, after chatting with you a little bit about this, um, my answer that I've been giving people is no, I, I still want to take them back. Like there's something there's something here. I know that these specific eggs or the producer has been associated with these illnesses, I don't want to mess with that. I, I know that I can effectively, if everything goes to assumption, I can effectively manage the risk by cooking and not cross-contaminating them. But, but why, right? Like if, right. I, if I can take them back, why not? And I would I will also add to that if you have already eaten some of those eggs and you have cooked them appropriately, um, be alert for symptoms, but don't, but like, 
be a little worried, but don't worry too much. Right. Like like it, you're probably going to be fine. Um, but yeah, why? But why take that now that, you know, I mean, I guess we could argue about the incremental risk of driving to the grocery store versus cooking the eggs and which is riskier. But that that's that's I think splitting, you know, hairs a little too finely. But yeah, if, if you know that these risks are part of the, these eggs are part of the outbreak, you should just return them. And if you are worried about the additional risk incurred by driving to the store, just take the eggs the next time you go to that store anyway. And you're already taking that driving risk. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 Exactly. Um, all right, so there's some eggs. I think I think we should get to our our very special guest. What do you think? Do we have I any think more feedback? I, uh, we do have a little bit more feedback. Um, but one of the, them is related to something we want to talk about later anyway. Right, so we'll pass on that one. Um, uh, and then also just one quick one and then one that takes a little bit longer. So the quick one is uh, just uh, some feedback from listener Eileen who writes, uh, love the talk as always. I like that. Oh. She, we can call the show the talk. Hey, I love the talk. I love the hey, talk. Hey, how, how was the talk this week? It was pretty. It was a pretty good talk this week. It was about, uh, yeah. <laughs> I love the talk this week. Um, uh, Eileen comments on the recall survey. Um, uh, she's really interested in that because of her public health background. Um, she also raises the issue of recall bias. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, you know, if the uh, if the if the survey takers had participated in or been affected by any recalls, then that would be they would be maybe heightened heightened sensitivity to recall uh, to 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 recall recalls. Oh, very good to recall recalls, right? So, and I think that's a good that's a uh, so it's 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 recall bias about recalls. So yeah, that's uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, listener Eileen, for that. So, uh, and then just one more very quick bit of feedback, which is about condiment dilution. Uh, this is uh, from uh, listener Anonymous, who does not give us a last name. We'll call him uh, Deep Ketchup or Deep Mustard, maybe Deep, deep Mustard. Uh, so, Deep Mustard writes, um, a years-long listener of the podcast, having discovered it when I started working for a private food safety company with a three-letter name you've made fun of for giving out sports. <laughs> Racking my brains to think who that it might be, but I think I, I think I know. Um, when I started with them, my knowledge of food safety science was essentially zero, and your podcast was one of the many resources I found to learn more about the topic. So thank you, uh, Mustard. I, I appreciate that. Um, this question has nothing to do with any of that. I just wanted you to know uh, how valuable it's been. Um, the question is, it's common practice for some people to add water to condiment bottles to try to get the last of the contents out with ketchup and mustard. Is this a potential food safety hazard? Well, I can tell you what I do is I turn the bottles upside down, I smack the hell out of them, and then eventually I give up and I just rinse them out and, and, and recycle the plastic. So I don't follow that practice, or if you were going to follow that practice, you could dilute it slightly and then squeeze it out. The problem is I don't like diluted ketchup or diluted mustard. So I suppose you could cook with it and, you know, rinse with some water or some vinegar and, and, you know, do that. But I, it's probably a small risk and it's probably not no risk, but you know, I, I, I don't know. I, uh, it's not, it's not something I worry about. I don't worry about saving the money of not wasting the condiments. Um, I think a more interesting question, which we can talk about on another show would be the, the practice of marrying, ah. um, yesterday's ketchup to today, today's ketchup in restaurants, which I also think is low risk. But anyway, do you have anything to add on condiments before we, we, uh, link in our special guest? No, I just wanted to, to highlight like what, what the, risk might be and it's just the changing ph right like we've got right. some some ph of uh you know um low ph high acid condiment and now we're gonna dilute that down with with some water i i think you'd have to dilute it quite a bit to drop it uh you know to to um increase the ph level to a, a point where it would then uh you know effectively support growth um but yeah it's not something i've ever done 
but I think I'm with you. It's it's mainly for for quality reasons because I don't think I'd like the really watery stuff. Yep. Uh, yep. Cool. All right. Okay. Well, let's see if I can make the magic of uh, of the Skype work here. And while I while I do so, we're uh, we're inviting um, uh, a, a new, I guess new friend of the podcast, um, Mark Belmere, uh, who uh, published a paper on uh, farmers markets and foodborne illness uh, correlations. And, and we've talked about uh, a previous iteration of this uh, of this paper. So anyway, let me see if I can make this work. Right. And so while you do that, I'll, I'll keep talking a little bit. And so uh, the genesis of this is that Mark uh, is uh, an economist and this uh, paper, his paper was, was recently published in the American Journal of Agricultural Economics. And the nice the nice thing about it, so we, we talked about this for a couple of different reasons. Of course, it's uh, farmers markets, food safety, but also we talked about this because of the idea of this uh, white papers, which is I, I've learned through uh, working with my ag econ colleagues that these uh, this is a common practice to publish these white papers in ag economics or in, in economics. It's common in the field. And the idea is that they put the paper out there and then they iterate on the paper and then eventually it gets published. Um, and it's just kind of a different way. It's it's a little bit, I get I guess, like scientists that use preprint servers, uh, which is, again, not something that's terribly common. It's more more common, I think, in, in physics and, and, and uh, those sciences and less common in, in food safety and food science, although it does get some uh, does get some traction so um yeah so so uh anyway we're gonna have mark on the the show to talk about his recent uh publication uh entitled farmer farmers markets and foodborne illness right and i'm trying right now <laughs> to do this i thought i'd stalled for long enough did, um, oops oh no that's all So while uh, while we are waiting, I will uh, I will read to the audience from the abstract. Uh, uh, so here's the abstract of the article using longitudinal administrative data on all U.S. states and the District of Columbia for the years 2004, 2006. And 2008 through 2013, we study the relationship between farmers' markets and foodborne illness. Now, interestingly, um, Mark uses a hyphen in foodborne illness, uh, and uh, I don't always. Um, so there you go, hyphen in foodborne illness. We find a positive relationship between the number of farmer farmers' markets per million individuals and the number of million not the number per million of reported uh, number uh, first food total outbreaks and cases of foodborne illness as well as outbreaks and cases of norovirus as well as outbreaks of campylobacter in the average state year our estimates indicate that doubling the number of farmers markets in the average state year would be associated with 2.6 additional outbreaks of foodborne illness 0.8 additional outbreaks of norovirus and 0.3 additional outbreaks of campylobacter per million as well as 3.45 additional total cases of foodborne illness, 22.9 additional cases of norovirus, and 1.5 additional cases of campylobacter per million in the same state year. 
Our core results are robust to different specifications as well as to deleting outliers and leverage points. Well, this is good. Uh, it was good. Uh, good radio there, Don. Um, Mark has just sent me a message on uh, on Twitter that says he is not able to join us uh, at this time now. So uh, we'll have to uh, have him Skype in uh, in another episode. Um, oh man! Yeah, and I I think it, um, I, I should have asked him to block a, a larger uh, amount of time. He thought it was going to be maybe a short interview, and he had oh. he's he's doing a bunch of other media. Well, um, to be honest, uh, probably you know, with more listeners, not probably true. not as high, not as high quality, right? Uh, but you know, probably larger reach. One, so one thing. So since we're talking about it, and we'll, um, I, I want to, like, I want to ask him about the the paper, but I, I want to give our listeners some pre reading to do and check in this paper out. Um, the the thing, uh, so. There's a there's a, a correlation um, that he shows on uh, number of farmers markets per uh, million people compared to uh, outbreaks and illnesses that are investigated or outbreaks investigated and illnesses uh, recorded for Campylobacter and norovirus. And um, there's some supplemental info- material that we'll link to in the in the show notes that shows kind of uh, some assumptions and, and what uh, I'm not like, again, super familiar with the field, but they do placebo. Can, um, uh, they run pl- placebo correlations as well. So they looked at things like number of bankruptcies um, you know, per million people. Um, they looked, one of the things that they test against it was number of restaurants. And the thing that I'm, I'm interested in, we'll pose this to him when he, when he comes on is, I don't see a restaurant and a, and a farmer's market as the same, same kind of thing. Um, I, I don't know if they map out the same, but I, I wonder if the number of grocery stores per million people is the same as the number of farmer's markets, meaning maybe this is a food issue, not a where you get your food issue. Um, do you know, you know what I'm saying, Don? Yeah. So, for example, uh, a restaurant, basically, the restaurant itself is in charge of food safety. Yes. But a farmer's market is more like a grocery store in that you are buying the food and then you're kind of in charge of food safety. Now, we could argue semantics um, because fresh produce, really, what can any of us do? Right. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. And it's it may be that it's it has more to do with the t- like the supply chain and the type of stuff that, that comes in there. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think we, um, he, he, he mentions, uh, you know, thanks to, uh, authors are grateful to those readers who took the time to write constructive criticism in response to the January, 2016, New York times gray matter column that discussed the pre- preliminary results. And I think that things may have switched a little bit because, um, you know, we saw stuff like, um, perfringens and staph aureus and be like, yeah, those, that, that's not really a farmer's market factor. Um, you know, it, it doesn't really have to do with the growing practices or the, the storage. Those are preparation issues. Um, and you know, the additional analysis kind of let those shake out. Um, so anyway, it was, uh, it's, it is an, it's an interesting read and we'll have Mark on it another time. Indeed. Uh, let's talk lettuce. Let's let's go from farmers lettuce, markets. Lettuce, lettuce, lettuce talk lettuce. Lettuce talk lettuce. 
Let us talk romaine lettuce. Um, uh, another, um, I, you know, not good outbreak. Uh, as of today, 84 illnesses, 42 hospitalizations. So 50% the individuals ill um, in this outbreak uh, have been hospitalized, which is uh, higher than I think what we would typically see with a, a E. coli 157H7 um, outbreak. And it's uh, epidemiologically been linked to um, uh, rom- cut romaine lettuce that was grown in the Yuma region, uh, Yuma, Arizona. I guess that Yuma region also includes a little bit of California, but I'm, I, I, I think geogra- like it's right on the state line. Um, and so there's I, I th- this one. The egg thing has kind of gone away. The romaine lettuce has got legs, and it's every day. There's more coverage of this of this thing, um, we- which is in, which is interesting yeah. because I think <clears throat> I I my opinion, and it's only my opinion, is that the outbreak is over, right? That there are no new cases uh, arising, which for reasons that we'll we'll talk about in a little bit. But whereas the egg outbreak, um. You know that there we might still be getting people sick from these eggs um, if they've got them in their fridge. Right. Do you do you agree? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. I I think um, the uh, the outbreak's over. Like uh, looking at the case, um, the uh, epi curve, it looks like we're on the downside of things. Although we're still in the window of uncertainty where illnesses during this time may not be reported but if if the um if the the estimation is correct that um we're that it is romaine and it's from yuma and and all the things point to that then it should just naturally end because the products no longer on you know in people's fridges and, and on the market where where eggs can stick around as you said for a long time I mean, yeah, right. Like I, I have no, I have no doubt that the uh, on the CDC uh, uh, epi curve, they've got a shaded region that says illnesses uh, that started during this time may not be reported. I have no doubt that that, that those numbers may continue to creep up. My, my point, I guess my point that I'm trying to make is that if you again, well, I mean, and what the CDC and the FDA are saying is if you don't know where if you cannot confirm that the lettuce is not from Yuma, don't eat it. I agree with that statement. But what I'm saying is that you would have to try really hard to find lettuce from Yuma now because right. because the harvest has left Yuma. It's moved further north. And so basically, if you if you see romaine out in the world today, in the United States today, as of uh, Thursday, April 26th, um, it is probably not from Yuma, right? It might be, but I think it's highly unlikely. Right, right. Um, and this is the – so I'm going to go to something where you, you got um, you got into a discussion on Twitter about I think this exact – this exact point where mm-hmm. – um, and I'll, let, me, let me go find uh, what you so greatly titled um, WTF did I do uh, in, in, the, in the Dropbox. And I'm going to – I think I know what you did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Quoting, quoting the famous uh, Jimmy McNulty and we'll link, uh, we'll link to uh, Jimmy McNulty uh, uh, compilation. Yeah. So, um, 
uh, a Twitter, I'm not sure if she's a Twitter follower of yours, but someone came across one of your tweets that got retweeted, and um, her name's uh, Amanda Delina Morris. She talked about, um, uh, she brought up a point, and I think it, I think it hinges upon this Yuma region. Um, you know, if if you're not eating uh, romaine from the Yuma region, then you're okay. Um, kind of kind of thing, and I think it was a misinterpretation of something that you said, which is totally in line with what everyone else is saying. Um, her comment was, it's racist and classist to assume all Americans have sufficient health literacy to know where their lettuce is sourced and have true choice in their produce selections. Um, and that, so, so I, I get, I totally get her, her comment, right? Like our message of ask people where it came from, um, go, you know, make, make sure it's not from that region. Um, that is a conversation for, for you and I who are like, you know, well, well off privileged folks that we can have this conversation. I think what she's talking about is if you are going to a food bank, if you're relying on the school lunch program, um, as your source, you have to trust that someone who, who's producing that food knows that it's from, not from the Yuma region. Um, so, so that, like, I think it's, it's more about the, the, a misread tone of your message and which again, wasn't really your message, but just re repeating what CDC had been saying. Um, and the, the comment of, yeah, not everybody can ask that question because that might be our only food source or there are people out there. And I think that's what, you know, that that's where her, um, her, her message came from. And that like, that's a real, like, that's a real thing. Um, the, the other piece is it is like, if I go to my local grocery store and ask them where the romaine lettuce that's in a bagged chopped salad comes from, I don't think they can answer me either, right? Like I, I, they, I, I think that they would struggle with that. Well, so can I? Can I? And I think I shared this on Twitter. I'm not sure if you saw it, but on uh, Saturday, on Saturday, a week ago, um, I was at uh, Delicious Orchards, uh, which is which is a uh, a very a sort of an upscale, um, you know, racist, classist, <laughs> where people wear racist, uh, racist, classist people shop like hot me. takes, hot takes, hot people. takes. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I'm there because so it's I'm there because it's across the street from a Thai restaurant where we go every not to, you know, not to compromise my OPSEC, but where we go every Saturday usually and have Thai food and we, we needed uh, produce supplies. And so I like shopping at this place. It's a the, the produce section is immaculate. I mean, it's really, really hand curated. And we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, and I'm looking at the lettuce, right? And I'm, 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 there's some bagged, uh, bagged, uh, hearts, romaine hearts. So they're in a bag and I'm looking and, and it says Salinas and I'm standing next to a, um, a couple, a husband and wife couple, and they're talking and, uh, I forget whether it's the husband or the wife picks up the lettuce and the other one says, Oh no, um, we shouldn't get that because of the E. Coli. And, and I had just looked at this bag of lettuce and I said, Hey, um, I wanted to let you know, um, that this lettuce is okay. Uh, because you can see right here, it says it's from the Salinas Valley and the outbreak is confined to lettuce from Yuma. 
we're from the Yuma Valley. And so this, this lettuce is okay. And they said, oh, okay, thanks. And, uh, and they put it in their bag and they walked on. I, I promptly turned around because I had just finished. I, I didn't buy romaine that day. I bought arugula because the arugula at this place is, is really good. I turned around and I went to pick up some tomatoes. And I see there's a guy there from the store. He's wearing the store shirt. And uh, he's looking at me and he's kind of smiling and he's nodding his head. And, he sa- and I said to him, hey, do you agree? And he said, yeah, I agree. And we ended up having a nice chat. Turns out that's the owner of the place. And, and we and we had a really it's like, yeah, we, we haven't had we haven't had uh, romaine from Yuma in like three weeks. And we had this in-depth conversation around food safety and about where he gets his lettuce from. And I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. And I just felt like so I felt like so like it was such a great experience. And then and then Amanda um, comes at me with my hot takes um, and, and, and I'm crushed. But 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 it was still I still felt like it was a, I was I was useful. I was having a useful discussion. I had a great conversation with the guy that owns this whole place who obviously cares about fresh produce, who knows where his lettuce comes from, because guess what? It's his business to know. And it just was like it just made me feel really good. So, and I, you know, I don't know where things went off the the rails with Amanda. Um, I, I mean, she's saying, and then again, well, her last tweet is decrying the broadly accepted recommendations of experts because you read your bag lettuce is a crappy take, except she didn't say crappy, right? But this is a family podcast. Um, here's the thing. Um, I don't think they were broadly accepted recommendations necessarily of experts. And guess what? You know, I've, I, I, it's like, I'm not, I'm not Milton Berle, right? I'm not going to take out just enough to beat you, but I think I have some <laughs> credentials here. <laughs> oh man. Uh, true, true, true. Uh, um, yeah, no, I, 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 I kind of, yeah, I, I kind of read this as, um, I think you guys are, you're both saying the same thing. I think there's a, there was a sticky, a sticky point in in one of your one of your tweets and it was like four things that you had mentioned but it was one it was this one thing about go you know go find go ask if it, where it's from um that i that i think she took took exception with and it made me it was like yeah you know you know you're right and, and in fact um in in part of this I, I and i like it when people get mad at you on twitter so i'm i'm all for it <laughs> uh, but but in fact there's a really interesting um i don't i don't know if you had a chance to read the uh, most up-to-date um, CDC um, uh, report. Let me pull it up here. Uh, yeah, from from yesterday. From I have last, it. Up. Okay. Yeah, uh, I think it's in here. No, maybe it's not. It was somewhere uh, where it talked about um, early on in this outbreak that uh, Alaska prisoners in Alaska. Yes. Um, that, well, that and, and it was it was the prisoners in Alaska that specifically caused the CDC and maybe FDA to change their recommendation from bagged romaine to any romaine. Right. But still from Yuma. Right. So here's right. so so her, Amanda's comments made me think about our prisoners in Alaska who don't have any other source. <laughs> right. They're mm-hmm. at the mercy of uh, the federal penitentiary system. Um, so yeah, no, no, I, I mean, I, I, I see, I, I, I totally understand her, uh, her comments and I don't think you were coming at it as in, in a, uh, in a classist, uh, elitist, uh, racist, uh, kind of way. Well, well, thank you. And yeah, and, and believe me, we've, we've talked on this podcast about food deserts, right? I understand. 
like I get her perspective. I, I just think I'm mean, anyway, maybe the problem is that Twitter were limited to, uh, you know, a limited number of characters and, and people on Twitter are famous for their, their hot takes. But, um, I still stand by everything that I said. And I think that for the most part, yeah, I mean, Amanda and I agree, right? Like, yes, public health is a great place to learn. Guess what? I'm on Twitter. Well, I'm on Twitter to goof around and to, to have hot takes, but also to try to educate. And I think that this particular outbreak is a good one for a number of reasons. And, and I want to, I want to talk, I want to get your perspective more and, and recollection more like the idea that produce is grown in certain regions of the country at certain times of the year and that changes and the the idea it's not it's not that all romaine lettuce right now is somehow contaminated like the great salmonella god sprayed E. coli or the great E. coli god sprayed E. coli across all the romaine? No, it's it's a single source. And the problem is we are having difficulty resolving that source. And so we have to make increasingly more or, or less generic recommendations to try to narrow that down. But it's really a very small amount of romaine that's sick. And absolutely, HUS is not a joke. And absolutely, kids die from HUS. Believe me, I get that, right? Like I've met people whose kids have died, right? I, I understand that. But I think it's also important to try to be accurate and to be correct when we're talking about this stuff, not to lecture people, but to explain like where our food comes from. And the fact that it probably was a limited amount of lettuce in the in the Yuma Valley that was contaminated, right? And And then, and then it becomes about, well, how do we communicate that to people that don't necessarily understand where their lettuce came from. Well, part of it is trying to explain where your lettuce came from, right? I mean, to me, that's part of it. Well, and I'm, I'm, I'm increasingly at a loss with, with lettuce and, and leafy greens. And I, I posted something um, just before we started recording. I updated our, um, uh, our, our table. We like to track outbreaks on, on Barf Blog. And one of the things that, that continuously kind of gets picked up is this, like, not, I, I, not you know annotated list of outbreak date. What was the what you know, What was the pathogen? How many people got sick? What was the source? And any data that we can have on you know the outbreak stuff. And we're now uh, so what I tweeted out was we're at seventy eight outbreaks linked to leafy greens since nineteen ninety five. Um, I'm not looking at the I'm not graphing things here, but um. The what, what was the tipping point, Don? Um, that everyone likes to to cite. This is you. I'm I'm lobbing something for you to lob back to me. <laughs> um, was it was it the 2006 outbreak um, with spinach? It was. Ah. Um, Don, that since then, how many how many outbreaks do you think we've had in leafy greens the t- since the tipping point? I don't know. Is it? Do you think it's less than? Or more than we had in between. So from <laughs> 1995 to 2006, and then from the tipping point till now, um, is it less before or less after the tipping point? Uh, less? It's more. It's more, yeah. It's more. I, so I'm counting outbreaks. What about counting cases? So this is, I'm just counting outbreaks um, because the cases is hard, right? Oh, well, I, no, I guess the no, cases aren't, isn't hard. I can do the cases too. All right, so let me uh, let me do some let me do some Excel math here. Um, uh, more. Um, okay. Nineteen hundred uh, around nineteen hundred and fifty illnesses since October two thousand and six. 
before October 2006 and including, um, we're at uh, 1,400, 1,300. Well, so, so and, then, and, then, and then we also have to factor in um, better epidemiology, like better epidemiology right? It's a moving, yep. yeah. It is, it is. But I, I, I'm, I'm not, and you know, Doug and I share very similar thoughts on this. It, we can't say that 2006 was a tipping point at, at any way, like in any point or any form. I, I can tell you one industry who we've pumped up a lot on this, uh, on this podcast and um, you know, friend of the pod, friend of ours, writing buddy, Almond Queen, Linda Harris. That industry had a tipping point, right? Two outbreaks, all coming from one spot. They changed everything that they do. And I, I've I've really just summarized like ten years worth of work into four sentences. Um, here with Leafy Greens, it, I, I don't know. Like I, I look at what we have going back to 2011. Um, there's been 21 outbreaks since 2011. Uh, about half of them are E. coli. Uh, there's some norovirus and some salmonella and some cyclosporin and some listeria in here, but I don't know. I don't know for if if this if they're getting better. Like I just think that um, a couple of times a year we're gonna have lettuce linked outbreaks, and and I don't I don't know if that'll ever go down. Like based on where things are right now. Well, I I wish we could figure out where it's coming from. Right. Right. I yeah. mean, what's what's the specific problem? Well, and and it seems like in the outbreak investigations, when we do see stuff, it's like, well, here here are four contributing factors that we think all of them have a could have led to this, right? So it's like water is an issue, sanitation in the in the processing plant, uh, wildlife, and um, wash water management. I mean, I, I can almost guarantee that every one of these outbreaks has one or more of those, and it's hard to to parse out which one to focus on. Um, so I had an, an email from someone who's an extension who didn't say things like, I, you can read my name on air. Um, and so, so I won't, but the title, uh, this is someone, someone who I know who is not a food safety person, um, emailed me at, at one today with the subject line, Romaine question mark. Uh, <laughs> and, and it said, uh, the message is, is it safe to eat yet? Question mark, exclamation mark, help, exclamation mark. And my answer <laughs> was, if it's not from Yuma, it's as safe now as it was before the outbreak. Exactly. And I, I want to highlight that because that is something I've taken to saying as well, because we cannot say that it's safe. All we can say is, is it higher risk or lower risk? And it's and, and it's the same risk, right? It's the exactly. Same risk. Right. Yep. And and then my my second line is. But 78 outbreaks linked to leafy greens since 1995. And, of course, I had just posted that. So it was, like, fresh in my mind. Um, leafy greens in general are always riskier than something like squash. Right? Like, that – right? Yeah. That, yeah. And, and so I am – I know um, Mike Doyle has talked about – he has – he – and I hope I'm not misquoting him, but um, I'll find a, a link to this. He has said uh, in, in a few um, – uh, media interviews, he he chooses to not eat washed, cut leafy greens for risk reasons. And I am I love that product. I am 
I don't know. I, maybe I'm maybe I'm starting to move towards not wanting to eat that product. I don't know. I don't know. This one, it's starting to like it. I'm struggling more with it than I have in the past on my my own risk management decisions. Yeah, and I would say so. My my take on on that, and I think it's a it's a it's a good one to think about. Is I would rather. Well, so well, not I would rather. Um, there's a convenience to buying yep. uh, cut cut bag leafy greens, and I get that, right? Um, and so, if you're going to do that, you have to trust the retailer, you have to trust the processor, and you have to trust that they're managing temperature and they're managing cross contamination, right? Because as uh, Dan Luck and Schaffner showed, uh, apparently, according to uh, computer maths, um, cross contamination in these products can be important. Yep. Now, when I am washing my own head of lettuce, um, I can rinse the dirt off and I can pull out the, the gross looking leaves if there are any, right? And I could, if I, if I want, if I chose to, although I don't, I could uh, put some vinegar in the water or I could use a produce wash, right? I could do all of, I could, I could, heck, I could put chlorine in the water, but I'm, but I'm not going to do that, right? Um, but I am more directly managing that risk. And then, and, and I'm also, because it's a head of lettuce, it's unlikely, not impossible, but unlikely it has been cross-contaminated by other heads of lettuce uh, or by other, uh, like, you know, other pieces of lettuce that are contaminated. I'm managing that process myself and I've confined the risk risk to a single head of lettuce. And so I think that single head is probably lower risk. Now, of, of course, Alaska uh, and this outbreak, um, you know, that, that raises some other questions. And I would really like to know a whole lot more about those specifically where those heads um, in Alaska that made those prisoners sick came from. So so that's something to, to think about. Um, but yeah, I mean, for sure, leafy greens are risky. I, I, I still eat leafy greens um, from the, the salad from the mall. Um, yeah. You know, I, I still eat uh, leafy greens from, you know, chain stores like McDonald's. Uh, I still eat leafy greens that we buy at Wegmans. Um, I still eat leafy greens that I wash myself. Um, I, I appreciate Mike's perspective. Um, you know, but, but I mean, it, it, it does give one pause. It does. It does. And it's, I, I know that there's a lot of resources that, that go into, um, the leafy green marketing agreement. um, uh, the, um, you know, stuff that's out there, United Fresh, uh, has talked quite a bit about leafy green management and, and people are, are, are talking a very good game about how much we care about food safety and are, are putting, I'm sure that, that practices have changed since the quote, air quote, Richard fingers, um, uh, tipping point in 2006, but we're, I, we're not we're not down to like one outbreak every four years, and I'll point at um, you know another friend of the friend of the podcast, uh, Michelle Daniluk. She's heavily involved in the T gaps uh, program, the tomato gaps in Florida, and that's a, a I mean, and we're literally comparing <laughs> um, lettuce to, to tomatoes here. Which, <laughs> see what I did? There? Not apples and oranges. Not apples so. and oranges. We're, we, these are two different two different products. We're comparing things, but that's a, that's another another example of hey, there's a problem. We're going to legislate something. We're going to move forward on it. And maybe the, maybe the thing is that was an easier problem to fix. And maybe that's the same thing with um, with with almonds or easiers might not even might not even be the right right way. Maybe it was just there was less pathways to it, uh, attack. I don't, I don't know. 
Um, well, I, I can tell you so right away. So almonds is easy because you can give it a five log reduction, right? Yeah. Um, uh, leafy greens are different than tomatoes, right? Tomato is a smooth uh, fruit. It is relatively easy to wash. I would say that there's, generally speaking, the the tomatoes that arrive at my house are less damaged and have less entry points for for harborage of organisms or or little places where they can grow. Whereas head lettuce or bag lettuce that comes to my house, I I I mean maybe sometimes my wife thinks I'm a little nuts, but I'll pick out the ones that look bad. And if it's a particularly crunched up and damaged piece of uh, lettuce, I'll just put it right in the compost and I won't eat it. And so there's a lot more waste um, that goes uh, goes into the compost pit um, from from leafy greens than tomatoes in part because I'm managing that that process. So um, yeah, the risks are different uh, for sure. And I think uh, leafy greens are a higher risk than than tomatoes. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. Like, and that's I mean, all of that is exactly where I am in my in my headspace right now. Um, with it, I, I'll tell you, I'm eating more cabbage than I ever have. Oh my God. I had a cabbage salad for lunch. Uh, Kristen makes this amazing, uh, Vietnamese, uh, and we'll link to it. This Vietnamese chicken, um, salad with cabbage. Oh my God. It's so good. Uh, we'll, I'll, I'll, we got a link to it. It's, it's really highly recommended. Awesome. So. Well, I'm eating more cabbage because blue apron is delivering a lot of cabbage right now <laughs> to my house. Yeah. And I never like neither. I, I don't think I've ever bought a cabbage. Like at the grocery store, and Danny and I were not cabbage fans, but we're, I get, you know, it stands up for transport and it's cheap and it's big. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of reasons why I think it's in my blue apron stuff, um, but I'm enjoying it. Like, we, I had some cabbage last night that was oven roasted with some peppers. It was with this um, curried uh, chicken pan sheet thing. Uh, and it was, it was really good. Anyway, this sounds like a spot for blue apron. They are not one of the sponsors of our podcast, but they could, uh, they could sponsor could. it. Sure. We'll take them. Uh, anyway, I'm eating more cabbage. So my leafy green consumption is, is probably increasing, but I'm, um, eating cabbage that is either soaked in a bunch of vinegar, which we're going to talk about that in a second and, uh, an oven roasted. Um, so before we talk about vinegar and this, uh, comes from, uh, uh, our, our friend, Carl Custer. Um, I want to, uh, I'm going to tell you about, oh my gosh, I do sound like I'm doing a spot. I want to tell you about something I like. I'm not going to tell you about <laughs> something I like. Uh, I, so today I went, I, I tweeted about this uh, earlier today as well, but I went to a uh, farmer's market today with a class. Um, I was a guest lecturer for a graduate uh, level post-harvest food safety class that we have here in our college that my friend Chris Gunter is the instructor for. And I spoke, did a discussion really. I had like eight slides in, in their class on Tuesday, just talking about post-harvest regulatory retail stuff. And then there's the, the class is set up in a way where every week there's a lecture on Tuesday and every week there's a, a field trip on Thursday. Uh, and so the field trip today was to go to the farmer's market and we spent some time with the farmer's market manager and he, he, you know, he knew why we were there. He knew that we were there as a class and in instructing of uh, food safety. And he, um, you know, told us about the farmer's market and how, uh, they have different, um, uh, you know, they have a, a place where farmers can retail their stuff. They've got a wholesale shed. They have a packaged good uh, goods area, um, and, uh, and 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 sort of talked about the intricacies of of running, uh, like managing that that kind of system. 
Uh, and, and the class pushed them a couple of times on, so what do you do for food safety? Like, do you require any of your vendors to do anything for food safety? And his response is kind of like, no. I mean, we don't own the product. We're marketing the whole of, you know, come here and you, you as a consumer get to interact with all these farmers, but they essentially are, are acting as, you know, maybe there's 90 farmers that are at the farmer's market. Well, that's 90 different grocery stores with three or four products. You know, something, what we saw today was, was tomatoes, but in the, you know, as the questions came to him, I think, I don't think he got defensive, but I think he wanted to, to sort of, um, demonstrate that, that there's, you know, maybe we, we focus too much on food safety, which is a common thing that, that you and I have talked about and we, and we hear, and what he said was, um, he was, he was essentially saying, you know, I know there are regulations and it's good and, and we, we need to not make people sick, but seriously, how many people actually get sick from fresh produce? It's not very many. And a couple of my grad students were there and they were like <laughs> looking at me as, yeah, they started, as, as they should, yeah. as they should. And, and so I was, I was like, okay, I'm, you know, let me, I'm learning Don as I get older to, 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 and I think the podcast has helped. I'm, I'm learning to let to to sit back and think a little bit and and wait for someone to to finish their sentence, not sort of jump into like it, it, I have something really important to say, but I'm not listening to you, and all I can right. think about is when I'm going to talk about it. Yeah, with your hot takes. Yeah, so I'm exactly I'm I'm listening and and I'm like you know I, let me let me talk a little bit and let, let let's come back to this. So I did and I said, look. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that there's not a lot of people that get sick. And I was like, you know, CDC um, has looked at this and, and it's, you know, some data that's a little bit old, but there's um, some research uh, that, that, you know, they essentially did research to analyze their data and showed that about half or just a little under half of the illnesses that we saw in the U.S. In, between 1998 and 2008 were from produce. And he's like, are you kidding? It's like, No. And he's like, I just, I didn't know. And, and the thing that surprised me the most, um, is he's, he's in the, in, in this world. Like he is in the produce world. That is what he does day in and day out. And we've got a long way to go in our world of food safety. When this is a guy who, I don't know what the amount of money that goes through that farmer's market. And granted, he's not buying the product and he doesn't have the liability of the product but he is marketing it. He's the person who who should know the good and the bad of of the industry. Where that number surprised him, and if it surprised him, to me that and this is my um, jumping to conclusion assumption, it, it probably means that he's not as focused on fresh produce food safety as you and I are, who are familiar with that number. Well, um, quite quite frankly, or and I didn't quiz him, or uh, the owner of Delicious Orchards, yes. right? Who really seemed to be in the know, right? Yes, yes, right. And the, and the other thing that I would say too, it's like it's his world of farmers markets, it's our world of food safety, but quite honestly, it is also 
the CDC world of attribution of foodborne illness, which is which is a different field as well, right? Yep, and we yep. will definitely link to a painter at Al, which is the the article that you were talking about. And you know, I remember hearing John Painter present this a couple of different times, and there's disagreements about right. how CDC did this, right? And so this is not settled science either. But boy, it sure is compelling. And I and again, I don't know if my if my guy at Delicious Orchards would 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 necessarily know this either, but they need to. They need to hear this. They need to hear that it's not conclusive, but again, the best estimates by the best scientists that we have in this country do the attribution analysis this way. And if you care about the math and you want to see all that, you can, but just know that these are really smart people. This has been through peer review. This is our best guess as to what the situation is right now, and you should act accordingly. Right, right, right. And I... I keep coming back to um, the discussion we had in episode 150 about food safety culture and, and Temple Grandin. And I, that was that, that, that talk really mattered to me, like for, for lots of reasons, but I, I have been using that example. I gave a couple of talks last week and I talked about this top, uh, top down, bottom up. And one of the things that I, I, I've, you know, either forgotten or have, have lost track of sometimes when it comes to, um, the the work that that we did in the, in the past on on food safety culture is uh, food food safety culture doesn't have to be anything complicated. It really just has to be someone paying attention, and whether that's someone paying attention is the person who is cutting my sandwich at Subway, or it's the person who is the market manager at a farmer's market. There's and they have to pay attention to different things, but that's that's the the overall feeling definition of it is is that they're they're paying attention they know someone has told them or they are seeking out what are the things that I have to manage what are the things that I have to worry about and that I'm I'm taking care to pay attention to make sure that I'm not um you know I I know when to do this you know x practice and when to do y practice and when to invest in this and when to not invest like I don't that kind of thing but it it all comes down to just being able to to pay attention and it I don't know. It's it surprised me a little bit because I was like, oh, I think this guy who I've interacted with before, I, I had I thought he was paying more attention to it, and and he's just paying attention to other stuff, and which and is I, okay. I but but I would want my farmers market manager, even though he doesn't have liability, I would want him to know. I think if it's not if it's not proprietary, I'd like him to know where where his lettuce is coming from, yeah. right? I mean, it's coming from Joe's lettuce guy, but where did Joe's lettuce guy get it from? Since it's probably not being grown in North Carolina this time of year, I would assume. But I would like to, I would like to know, right? I would like him to know at least. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and I I don't want to be all doom and gloom. He he did have uh, a lot of what he talked about was going out to visit these farms to know whether they were growing the stuff themselves and yeah that's huge it is and and he said that that's the thing that he worries about the most because he doesn't and from a traceability standpoint he cited that he knew about the romaine uh outbreak and and he cited you know i I know that's coming from um a certain place in the country and what i don't want to have happen is some you know it's maybe not good romaine growing season for us someone to buy some you know cheap lettuce from from Arizona because they're dumping it because it's because CDC did not to eat it and that they, um, you know, take it and just package it as or promote it as something that was grown here in North Carolina and at my farmer's market. So he got, he gets, he totally gets that. And, 
and 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 did a really good job um, sort of talking about that. But the I, I just don't know if it um, if the rest of it all kind of fit together. And I asked him, okay, so when you go out to these farms, do you like do you ever assess the ones like you you you, you assess whether they can grow the stuff that they say they're growing? But do you ever look for food safety stuff? And he's like, no, I don't. That's not my that's not my thing. Like, oh, okay. And I think it should be. Like, or someone like someone's someone it should be someone if you're um allowing these individuals to to come and sell at your at your market. Yeah, or it should be part of his thing, right? Like yes. I, I understand he's got a bunch of things he has to do, but he should you know, I mean, if I'm telling him how to, how to run his business, yeah. he should probably go for a course, a training course on food safety, fresh produce, food safety. And then he should go out there and look for things like that when he goes to visit these places. Agreed. I, I would think I would like I would like that to be the case. So, uh, uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast um, and I'm not going to like share share any names, uh, but I had a chance after IAFP in 2013, maybe 14, whenever IAFP was in Portland, um, I had a chance to go, um, I guess it was 2015, uh, with a, uh, a retailer who you and I both know, a really smart retail person um, who's super progressive on, on food safety, um, had a chance to ride along with him to go to some apple producers in washington and he he invited me to be like i i i think he was just didn't want to do it by himself uh i don't think i added any sort of technical ability but he his his pitch to me was let's let's go you you come with me um this is part of what you need to do for extension in the state of north carolina um you you're you provide me some extension let's go look at some of my suppliers and you tell me if you see things out there that would be um, uh, risky. Am I missing something with the things that I'm looking at? And you know, as this this happened sim- soon after the Bedart brother brothers um, uh, linked outbreak with Listeria and apples. And so our our lens was let's look for Listeria in, in in these supplier packing plants. And we went to a bunch of them, and it, and and one of them, um, he and I. For the you know forty five minutes or an hour that we walked around the production area, really just kept like whispering to each other like, "Oh, oh, damn this 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 is not good. This place, there are a lot of things that they don't have in place. Um, they didn't have the right people. Um, they didn't have anybody with the food safety background that was designing their their food safety program. It was um, sort of pushed off on a administration person. Um, they didn't have training, and and they were a sizable um, a supplier. And after we sat, you know, there, after, after we walked through, we, he, we went and sat with the owner of the, of the company and the general manager and, um, and the retailer was like, really, um, you know, said something that made me like real uncomfortable, which was after we've been walking around here, I don't think you can be my supplier anymore. Like, like right now, like, don't, don't send me anything. Um, and, but right there, that was like, that's exactly what I want. Right. Like that's right. As a, as a customer of that retail chain, that is exactly what you want. Yeah. The uncomfortable part was I had to be in the meeting. Yeah. Well, at least he didn't say, you know, and it looked okay to me, but this guy Chapman, he's (laughs) all over you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My, my concierge here, my advisor is advising you not to, to buy my, buy your stuff. Um, but that, I mean, that's the, there, there's our, 
are are three different levels, right? Like like your example, your experience with the romaine lettuce in New Jersey, my experience with this retailer going like actually going to suppliers and looking specifically for food safety risks, and then my farmers market manager guy, Do, three three people that are doing essentially the same job, right? Like trying to market food safely that I can buy as a consumer um, and doing – it's a drastically different scale but but doing it in, in different ways. And people worry about like uh, big grocery stores and their food safety. I say people like consumer perception. You read, you read the comments on um, you know some of the, the news articles. It, 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 the – you know, getting getting real food from the farmers market versus something that's plasticky and, and very unsafe at a, at a grocery store. And my experience in the food safety world is, um, you can do these things correctly at all three of those spots, but the the big stores have way more infrastructure to do it. And and they they've also got more exposure, and they've got I don't know like twenty five thousand or two hundred fifty thousand uh, different products that they that they have to make an assessment on. But they they spend a lot of money on that brand protection because um, that's that's what they have, right? Like that's their that's where the value is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, rant rant over. But yeah, no, good one, good one, very good. Um, yeah, and I do remember you telling me that you were going to go on this. I don't know if we talked about it on the podcast, but I think it was a good uh, it was it was a good. Um, uh, perspective on that. So, so we should talk a little bit about washing romaine. Yeah. <laughs> our last is our last bit of feedback. Um, and this is, again, this is, uh, this is why we do it, right? So, uh, this is, uh, from listener Keith, um, who's a regular listener. And, uh, he says, uh, is it possible to wash lettuce to remove pathogens? I don't mind throwing away some lettuce, but I'm having a craving for a good Caesar salad. I'm wondering how long we could wait. Uh, to know if we can safely buy it again. Uh, his real que- he says, my real question is, is the surface contamination or is it in the cells or the vascular system? So my, my response um, is, as a rule of thumb, uh, I, I say washing, uh, whether you're washing your hands or your lettuce, it's about a one or a two log reduction. So that's a 90 or a 99% uh, reduction if you're doing it on the percent scale. Um, I tend to, although I will for sure uh, discard lettuce that is damaged because not because of internalization, but rather just because uh, if you damage the cells that releases nutrients and you can get multiplication of the microorganisms. So I'm not really worried about internalization so much as multiplication. Um, and again, um, we've talked about this before, but I'll mention once again, once again, um, you know, the reason why you put sanitizer in the wash water is not necessarily to get the contamination off the lettuce, but to prevent contamination to other pieces. Um, and again, if, if you if you think about it, if you have one massively contaminated leaf, well, that's going to make one person sick. But you can take all the E. coli on that leaf and spread it around to dozens or, or hundreds of other leaves. And now you have a possibility of making many, many more people uh, sick. Um, and then this this message happened to come in um, on, an, uh, I think it was a Friday night, and we had just um, um, ordered uh, pizza and a salad from our local pizzeria. 
Um, and there was romaine lettuce in the salad. <laughs> and this was on April 20th. Uh, and I said, uh, for what it's worth, I'll let you know how I'm doing in 48 to 72 hours. And, you know, I didn't get sick. Right. But I but I did think about it before I ate the lettuce. And I think I might have picked out some pieces that didn't look great. So uh, now um, uh, the listener uh, reengages and says, uh, so what does that mean for risk of illness? Uh, what's the difference essentially between 10,000 E. coli and 150 if I wash it? Um, and then so I, I, I've got a, a spreadsheet for that. Um, and so basically, um, uh, let's see, uh, 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 with a, a dose of 170 cells, uh, the probability of illness is 14%, which means about every seventh person eating a serving with that dose of 170 cells will become ill. Uh, if you change uh, the value uh, to 200, the probability is over 50%. That doesn't seem right. I think I did some some uh, math errors wrong there. But anyway, um, yeah, that's that's not right. Um, I think I said I think from 120 to to 200,000, the probability is over 50%, which means just about everybody uh, yeah. eating this dose. And there's ter- God, there's terrible typos in this email. Thank God it wasn't Fr- peer reviewed. Friday nights, um, Friday, yeah, Friday, Friday, night. Friday night emails. Yeah. So anyway, so I, I sent the spreadsheet so he could double check the math. But the the yeah, it's not two hundred. It's got to be two hundred thousand. So uh, the the bottom line is like you know it, the dose matters, right? And and uh, and so uh, you know uh, lower doses mean less illness, but not no illness. So uh, bottom line is um, wash your lettuce, but realize that washing is is, is not a perfect solution. And then again, it, it'll end with. Uh, the listener thanking me for saying if, if my PhD advisor had answered questions like this when I was asking him 30 years ago, um, uh, I always say I, I wish my PhD advisor had answered questions like this uh, when I was asking him 30 years ago. And I think 30 years ago, we didn't have the, the tools to answer these questions. I would have given different answers 30 years ago. But uh, anyway, I'm happy to, to help and uh, hope my students appreciate just how good they have it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, I, and my response to that was Don's really good at answering questions. You are. You are. I'm. I'm becoming terrible at and answering our listener questions in in real time on emails, and and you you uh, often take time and care to uh, construct a uh, a good science based answer, and, well, and and you're quick, and so you beat me. You like <laughs> I get guilted for like 20 minutes, and then you're like, oh no, here I got here. Let me here, here's the answer, or here's a answer, and it's really well reasoned. I'm like, oh, it's awesome. Thank you, Don. Well, so, yeah, so thanks to – so first of all, anything that comes from the website comes to me first just because that's the way it's set up. Um, but when when email – when uh, and I'll usually copy you on the response, but then uh, sometimes listeners then have our email addresses and, they, and then they reengage with us directly. Um, the other thing, honestly, that helps so much is uh, dictation, right? Um, I dictate so many emails either on my phone or on my laptop, which is why I have uh, really bad typos, uh, but it does make me very efficient at answering emails because all – and I'm a – just a crappy typist, but I'm a pretty good talk talker. So uh, anyway, and not a very good proofreader. So yeah, I do my I do my best. Um, it, it's 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 uh, it's it's fun. I I enjoy doing it. Um, uh, we'll we'll see how I do uh, when we sit down for uh, our writing buddies uh, and, and talk about how much time we've actually spent writing. Because I I did not I I maybe spending too much time answering emails and not enough uh, actually writing. Writing, so. yeah. Nice. Well, last thing I want to add is. Um, Back a couple of months ago, um, friend of the podcast, uh, sometime listener, Carl Custer, sent um, a bunch of us – I think you were included on this. Yep. 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 A really nice um, – yep, there you are. 
like starting of a literature review on on vinegar. Vinegar specifically um, on Roman lettuce or lettuces. And so I'm just going to read a little excerpt from this. And, and I, I think – I don't know where this is at because um, one of the other people that he included was uh, Kathy, Custer, Kathy Custer. Kathy Cutter, uh, scientific editor of Food Protection Trends. And Kathy encouraged Carl to – uh, to submit this as as a paper, so the full, you know, full credit goes to to Carl. He he's the one who's pulling this together. I'm just um, reporting straight from my email, and hopefully, there's a paper that we can read soon. Um, so he writes in the spring of 2017 while sprinkling balsamic vinegar over chopped romaine lettuce. I wondered if anyone had published on the bacterial side effect of vinegar on lettuce. After all, it's well known that acetic acid is the most lethal of the organic acids, and there have been several outbreaks, including lettuce. Uh, thus a quick search of salmonella vinegar salad yielded, uh, you know, some papers, um, but they didn't include E. coli 157. Uh, there's room for additional work. And he goes, um, and, and sort of does a really nice job sort of summarizing multiple studies, uh, put a nice table together that looked at salmonella, um, E. coli and lettuce, different acetic acid treatments, um, and what the, um, what the uh, results are, and, and I'll just skip forward and say, based on Carl's um, aggregation of the literature, vinegar is a useful household sanitizing agent for leafy greens and other produce. Greater time, temperature, or concentration increases the bacterial style effect. There are differences in the effect on leaves. Leaf surfaces differ in hydrophobic and hydrophilic substances. These affect both bac uh, bacterial attachment and the ability to treatment contact at attached bacteria or virus. And I, I like this, and I want to you know, think about this in, in the sense of risk reduction and put it into context for what, what you and I uh, talk about. Um, a, an unwashed uh, leafy green versus a washed leafy green versus – an unwashed leafy green that I was I rinsed at home, and then put a whole bunch of vinaigrette on, um, and a washed leafy green that I opened the bag and put a bunch of uh, vinaigrette on. Uh, those that washing step and the um, vinegar step is going to do something. It's not going to take things down to, to zero because nothing ever does. But that's it, it. It has a chance to reduce our reduce our risk. And what really matters is how much did it start with what was the what was the concentration um and you know really all, going back to uh, the stuff that you talked about earlier in the podcast um with with uh, respect to the paper that you and michelle did um that that's that helps uh, tell the story on how effective something like this would be but is there is there effect by adding some vinegar yeah probably it, it does it does something Right. And, and while I'm pretty good with the answering emails from listeners, I'm less good about responding from Car to Carl because often his emails are long. Um, they, they are occasionally what we would call the Friday night emails. Um, and they, uh, they, they require some actual really hard thinking. Um, and I just don't always have the, the capacity to do that. But yeah, so, so for sure, this is a really interesting topic. It would be good for somebody to look at it in detail. Um, 
Yeah. And I, I'm interested from a couple of different perspectives. One would be like, how much could you actually put on it before somebody would really just find it revolting? Yeah. Right. Because there, there is an acceptability issue. Like you could you could wash you could dunk them all in um, uh, vinegar. Right. But it would it would destroy the palatability. And it might also, depending on the, the vinegar and how long it was dunked, it might also destroy the edibility. It might just, you know, even if you could rinse it all off, it just would would, would just, just shrivel the leaves or something. So I don't know. Yeah, it would be – yeah, exactly. It would be gross. Um, yeah, gross. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what you're looking for. Uh, like, like the hard-boiled eggs. Um, and, and what what also is there is um, if you're going you – know, if you're already adding this as a salad dressing, then it's probably doing something, right? Like, but, but how much and exactly what, we're not, we're not sure, but it's, it's probably not zero. Right. And then if you're going to do it as a salad dressing, well, what about if it's an oil and vinegar salad dressing? Yep. And then what's the effect of the oil? And, you know, it gets complicated pretty, uh, pretty quickly. So it's, it's, pro it's probably not zero, but it might be essentially zero. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Um, cool. Well, I think that's a show, Don. What do you think? I think so. I I, I apologize um, to the listeners for the part in the middle where we, we probably didn't talk to uh, the person we said we were going to talk to, but yeah. I don't know to what extent you're going to fix that with I'm editing, not going to fix it at all. You're not going to – you're just going to leave it? I'm going to leave yeah, it cool. and we're going to – it's in the show. It's in the show. <laughs> yeah. um, and we're going to come back. We're going to talk to him next time. And I, I apologize too. I think uh, I we didn't uh, schedule that well, but whatever. This is all, it's all part of it. It's what – you know, there was less talk about our Skype not working, and that will make KMB very happy. And that's what we're here to do. Except KMB won't ever listen, but that's no, okay. Because we've, we've already, we don't, we have no, we just have um, no respect for our listeners' time. It's true. Uh, all right. Well, uh, Don, thanks, thanks again, and I will uh, talk to you next time. Bye -bye. All right. Bye-bye. So what do you? Out. No, that's okay. Um, so you know, one thing. Now that we're done, I want to talk more about the egg recall. So what do you think? Like, so there was a page in here. Uh, uh, feds colon rodents filth found at NC oh, Farm yeah, tied to massive egg recall. So what do you think? Is that was every egg farm like that, and this I one just so. was something else? Yeah. Okay. I I mean I I didn't see that at all being any different than what we'd expect, right? Like there's there's going to be rodents. There it's a farm. Um, and it's, I mean, it's not going to be 
good when it comes to the civil lawsuits that happen probably right because right. it's like let's yeah let's not um let's not compare this farm to every other farm although if i was on the fence that's what i would do mm-hmm. um but i i i don't i mean uh, what i would care about is is the washing is the wash water or the washing process working is there sanitation related to that where every egg that's going through that egg washer is getting recontaminated on the outside or are we looking at feed issues and maybe rodents are moving um the salmonella back and forth with you know within the flock but but i so, yeah so how much do you think the intergluteal cleft comes into play i think zero <laughs> I think the- okay <laughs> but i like it i love that that someone I, wrote I, that I, I'm, so, I'm glad i clicked on this because i forgot about the intergluteal cleft so oh. anyway there's some there's some funny funny FDA investigators. <laughs> I don't know who it was. Good job, intergluteal cleft guy or woman. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's. Do you, is there anything that you read in there that was like, here's a smoking gun? No, because I mean, I just don't. Yeah, I just you know, it's the problem is we don't we need we need the we need the the inspections from all the egg farms that didn't cause outbreaks, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what we need. Yeah. Yeah, okay, totally. cool. Well, anyway, we should we should call it a show, but well, it's, I think it's, you, have, you have a hard out, right? I do. I got to go pick a kid up from school, but oh, not that's right. Yeah, yes. but not until three forty-five. I have to leave here at three twenty, so I have, I have a few minutes. Um, so this one is mine. It is, and um, if all things go well, I'll post this tonight. The Toronto Maple Leafs are now out of the playoffs, so I have uh, no hockey is useless. Hmm. I don't need to watch it. Um, I don't care anymore. <laughs> Can tell that I'm bitter. The only thing I wrote on Barflog this week was about hockey. I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, all right. Let's look at times. So, oh, right. so two weeks from today, I'm going to be in in your neck of the woods. You're in in uh, or at least in Manhattan. Um. So I can't do it on Thursday the 10th, but I. Uh, Friday the eleventh is tough. We're hosting someone from USDA. Okay. Oh, and then the ninth, uh, I'm I'm flying back from CNU. Yeah, you're here seventh and eighth, right? And ninth. Yep. Yeah. Um, we could. I mean, if you wanted to, we could talk Monday the seventh before you got here. I don't know what time your flights and stuff are. Um. So my flight leaves New Jersey at one fifty. Um, which means I want to leave my house at eleven fifty. Is that is that a rush with? So we, we could nine. We could we could we could do nine. I I hate I don't I don't want to disappoint the listeners, Ben. Um, yeah, I don't want to go three weeks. So yeah, let's yeah. let's do nine. Well, and if it wasn't so, if it wasn't the seventh, right? It would be the fourteenth. I could do no problem, yeah. and I could do the. Sometime on the fifteenth, sometime on the sixteenth. So either it would be, I mean, just a few extra days. But yeah, the seventh, no. Works. But that, let's let's do let's do nine a.m. Okay, um, on the seventh, and that's uh, that'll work. Perfect. One five two, right? I think so. All right, nine until eleven, and you have a hard out eleven fifty. So we'll get you. I don't. Want, I know you like to be at the airport early. I, I, do. To, yeah, I do. I do. It's good. it's 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 a, it's an affliction, but it yeah. So if you so I'm, um. So you said your flight is at what time? One fifty. Yeah. 
So you, if you leave two hours before your flight, you get how long is it to the airport? It's an hour to get to the. I mean, oh, depending well, on tra- New Jersey traffic, yeah. but yeah. So I, I like, I like to arrive two hours before the flight leaves, which means leaving my house three hours before. So, but that's just me. But that won't. You can't so, do that. that. Yeah, I can. I leave at eleven. Get to the airport at noon. Flights at two. Yeah. Oh, okay. Close. You're good. Okay, okay, okay. I just want to make sure. I'm, yeah. Now I understand. Not leave your house at eleven fifty. Leave your house by eleven. 15. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, and and it, we won't we won't go two hours. No, right? no. And we, and do you, we could you start at eight thirty? I could. Yep. All right. Let's, let's do eight thirty. Let's do eight thirty. Yeah. Let's get you more time. Yep. That works great. Done. Cool. All right. Uh, I think that's all I got for you. All right. That was a good show. Yeah. I'll I'll put the uh, links in the Dropbox. Thank you. Did you get? Um, I so the papers. From Mark Balmier that we didn't talk to him about. Uh, do, do you have the links for those, or I can add them? Okay, yeah. you got so them. I so in in the show notes, I'm going to link to his white paper, which I found, and then uh, I, I will link to the the actual published article. Oh, we'll link to both. Of them. Awesome. Okay. Great. All right. I'll uh, talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.